0: The History of Personal Computing History, of History, of History of Personal Computing The History Personal computing.
1: Hey there, and welcome back to the History of Personal Computing Podcast. It's episode 13, released on March 13th. I hope they cancel each other out. Oh, Friday and the 13th. Friday the 13th even, yes. Um, and we're continuing our coverage of the early history of the Personal Computer Magazine. I'm Jeff Salzman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, David Grealish. How are you doing today, David? Good,
0: Jeff. I'm doing especially well. And yourself?
1: Uh, we're beginning to see spring here. Us too, just a little bit. <laughs> it, it reached fifty
0: degrees, and I
1: took off the jacket. I took wow. off the shirt,
0: and <laughs> it was warm. How about that? It was like in the mid-upper 60s here. So yeah, sounds about right. That, but you know, see,
1: in Pennsylvania, when we reach like f- uh, 50 degrees in March, you know, everybody gets down to shorts and 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 t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. When
0: it hits 50 degrees in October. Everybody's bundling up. Right. So, like here, when it gets 50 degrees, people have their uh, parkas on and scarves <laughs> and, and, and like ridiculous headgear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's true. You, the hot Atlanta, they, they can't quite stand the cold <laughs> down there, huh? Yeah. Well, we have a big show today. So, we should get moving. It's a big, right big away. shoe. A big shoe. Okay. So, let's get started. The History of Personal Computing podcast is your bi-weekly stroll through our virtual personal computing museum about the development of the most significant tool ever invented, the personal computer. But just what is a personal computer these days? That's a good question, since it continues to evolve. So we're looking back at that evolution,
0: one computer at a time. We wanted to create a unique new podcast about old computers and their history. So our stroll in the museum is through audio, and we post all of our writing and notes on our website. We generally discuss the machines in a date order within tiers, and tiers are in reference to the tiers of personal computing, which continue to evolve. In the past, they developed as a desktop, laptop, and smartphone, though now they are best described as the laptop, tablet, and smartphone, and and maybe a watch, I guess. Oh, yeah, coming come out with our watch. Let's see. Let me look at my Galaxy Gear 2
1: here real quick. Oh, yeah, it still tells me the time and runs apps. <laughs> and you are not to get yeah. side
0: rails, and you like that. You like your watch, don't you? You're pretty you know, I have a bunch no? of quality citizen
1: watches that I used to wear uh, based on my mood, and they. I don't wear them anymore.
0: This one watch does everything for me now. Well, just to mention, so, of course, before the show, you're aware that I just got a new MacBook Pro. And I'm very happy about it. And so did my wife, by the way. Ooh, two of them in the household. Did and they the, shave a millimeter off its thickness? No, this is no. this is not the brand newest ones. But so it's a retina and it's thin, but it's not the, the brand new, super thin MacBook that came out. But the reason we were able to do this is because my wife's job, she gets a bonus every year. And she got a very nice bonus this year, which paid for these. But part of that is we have $400 set aside and because she wants to be an early adopter of the Apple Watch, you know, on April yeah, 10th. My gonna, wife wants one of those too. We're going to stay up you know, April 9th, I guess, to midnight so she can order hers. So anyway, just to go there, we'll see how that, you know, she has an iPhone 6 and we'll see how that, how she really likes it.
1: Yeah, my wife wants the Apple Watch and it'll cost like 50 bucks more than I paid for mine. And I'm trying to see what it, what it does on top of that. Yeah, but do you like yours? So you really satisfied with it? Oh, yours? yes, and it's waterproof too. So, huh. uh, it's been splashed a few times. I don't worry about it, you know, when I go out in the rain or anything. I just wipe it down and
0: It's dependent uh, on your phone though, right?
1: Yeah, they they do sync with the phone. Uh other companies like Motorola and there's uh I think Sony has one. They have smartwatches which work with Android. I don't think too many have any that intimately work with iPhone. But they do hmm, yeah. work with all smartphones for like the fitness stuff, uh-huh. uh, because they talk back and forth to give you, you know, your basic fitness, your your steps, um, your heart rate if it supports that, and you know, other information.
0: How uh, um, how um, effectively far away from your phone can you get? Can you be?
1: Uh, it's Bluetooth length about uh, thirty feet. Okay. That's not bad. It's not bad. Now, my uh, I know the new Apple one will do it, but it, it's like a Dick Tracy type phone. So basically, it's a Bluetooth headset or handset. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can initiate calls on my wrist and talk to my wrist and hear on my wrist. And I know the new Apple one's supposed to do that too.
0: Hmm. It's very interesting stuff. I assume in the future, you know, there's been some commercials. I can't tell you which what, is it T-Mobile or Sprint or something where now, some of the new phones, and I think they're Android phones, where they can utilize your own wireless network. You know, like you're in the basement and you're not getting good four G LTE reception. So now they can use your your regular wireless in your house to. Yes, my Galaxy S five does that. Okay, so I assume that maybe these watches will probably go that route. That, that, that's for them to be really the effective. Thing. They're going to have to,
1: right? Yeah. Right now, I think the only radio that's in them is Bluetooth radio. I don't think they do Wi Fi because you know there's going to be battery drain and stuff. Yeah. But I guess as they improve that technology. Um, they're, they're going to start do I mean, I, I know there's companies that are making actual cell phones for the wrist, huh. but they're, <laughs> you have to probably charge them every six hours.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, enough of that, but it's okay All to right. mix in a little current tech, right? Yeah. just let people know where we're
1: at now and where we, where we've been. Uh, anyway, uh, one thing we do need to get straight, uh, from the last show and I think the show before that. And you is. remembered, thank you. <laughs> it's a little listener appreci- appreciation. Boy, that didn't come out right. For all of those who have provided us with pictures and other submissions. And I think we got all the acknowledgments squared away here. So here they are. Uh, some of the images on our Atari 400 800 article on the website were uh, provided by Kevin Lund. And he provided some very nice looking Atari 400 uh, pictures and, and some accessories. Thank you, Kevin. Also recently, Justin Knight provided us with some Atari 800 pictures, along with pictures of the various Atari sec- accessories. So we got some Atari fans out there. And in order to promote these uh, listener submissions, a new section was added to the History of Personal Computing website as a showcase for these images our listeners send to us. You will find a direct link on the right-hand side of the History of Personal HistoryofPersonalComputing.com website called and I'll think of a better name sometime in the future, submitted images. Um, now, we're currently configuring that section. That so all, all the images submitted to us so far are not there yet because I'm playing around with a slideshow program that, that does it. So it might seem a little cumbersome at first to navigate. Uh, but as we add more images and even images of our own, uh, yours and I's, uh, my, my images, David, oh, yeah. um, you know, we'll build that up to a nice slideshow of images of people's real stuff. Real computers.
0: Yeah, you know what? We could even add. Like, I have some pictures of you know some of the computers I've owned over the years. So there's some archival images of my collection. That'd be kind of a neat place to finally put them somewhere where other people could see it. Go through your Facebook postings and your Twitter postings and recall those images you took on the spot and add them. No, these are just living in my iPhoto, so nobody sees them ever. Oh, there you go. And even some I've I scanned them in. You know, from old-fashioned. Photographs So yeah, we can archive and
1: catalog them and organize them and put them into separate slideshows very cool So David on today's show we are continuing our special coverage about the rise and often fall of the personal computer magazine Before the internet and for many who were weren't members of computer user users groups. Well my tongue's just not working today. <laughs> um, And we started early. And we started early. (laughs) No, we need to start later, like usual. (laughs) The magazine was not only their primary, but the only means of keeping up to date. For a lot of people, too, their magazine of choice may have also been their primary retail source for computers and peripherals. Um, Old computer magazines are a great source of history these days and contain valuable snapshot of a specific period in the history of personal computing. We covered four that premiered before 1981 last time, so let's cover four more on this show,
0: and we'll start with you, David. Okay. Um, and of course, just to mention, obviously, there were far more than eight magazines, you know, that covered personal computing prior to 1981, and yes, uh, certainly there were, news, yeah, there were a lot of Yeah, there are a lot of newsletters here. Yeah. Um, and you know journals and so on and you know some that were um academic and some that were industrial or specific to an industry um anyway and corporate related and so on so we're, we're kind of focusing on the ones that were for like regular people you know or the ordinary hobbyists and, and users of computers so one that i thought was really important to cover even though it was uh so we're going to start off with. Is, uh, and we have a very short entry for it too, was a magazine called ROM, and it was one of the early yet very short-lived publications. And uh, I had, I've heard of this magazine many times over the years, but I didn't realize, I guess how kind of rare it is. So it actually um, so it started during the microcomputer you know, hobbyist phase and it carried into the start of the home computing phase. But after only nine issues, it was purchased by and merged into creative computing, which we covered uh, last show. Some of the famous names that penned articles for ROM included Ted Nelson, we spoke about him last show, Lee Felsenstein, who uh, designed um, the Soul 20, and also the Osborne one, we haven't gotten to yet, and then Stan Veet also did some articles for ROM. That uh, name sounds familiar. Yeah, from Stan Veet's History of the Personal Computer, Yeah, the book that I need to put an echo on that (laughs) one. I need to get back to So it was published from July 1977 through the last issue was a dual month, March, April 78. So only nine issues. And then it became a part of creative computing. But it's, uh, and you know, it was really, I could not find a lot of other information. That came from one of the links in our show notes, which I'm going to now. And it's vintage-computer.com, which we utilized a lot last show. And this has got a pretty good list on the side of a lot of different journals and magazines. And it has a nice cover shot of the first issue. Are you looking at that? Yes, yeah. I am. I like that. I really like that drawing. doesn't neat. Uh, like a quick color pencil sketch. Yeah, a guy on a uh, motorcycle. with uh, It looks like an Altair off the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it says 77, the guy. And it shows the nine different issues and when they're published and the titles of them. And basically, I lifted a lot of my little information there from th- this little article here on Vintage Dash Computer. And that's really – there's no Wikipedia article. There's no – there's not a lot of information about ROM.
1: Yeah, somebody has issue one, number one. Uh, uh, oh, was it volume one, number one, in order to have this? It looks like a scanned image or scanned front cover.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So someone either, uh, you know, at this point, we should I should have finally went and looked who runs that website, huh? <laughs> yeah. I think it's Eric, Eric Stein, maybe? Anyway. God. Eric Klein. Klein, thank you. Yeah, right? Yep, that sounds yeah. right i okay. knock on his door sometime. But to fill out our, uh, our section on ROM Magazine, I actually, uh, in doing some searches on Google, what really helped was doing ROM Magazine and then putting that in quotes, you know, or on each end to contain that search versus it's just searching for the word ROM and then magazine. Yeah. So I found an article at InfoWorld. It's from the February 7th, 1979 article, um, issue rather. And I'm going to read a, a section of this. And it's kind of interesting how this worked out because I was really debating of including InfoWorld in our list because it also was a fairly prominent and, and long-run magazine uh, prior to 1981, and it continued well into well. Anyway, we'll get to that. But it was also but it was specific. It was not really a magazine for uh, regular people. It was really more for like corporate users. Is that is that the best way to describe it? You think? Yes. The business world or whatever. Yep. So, yeah, uh, those
1: those ones you would have gotten free just because you worked in an IT department and it ends up on the counter.
0: Yeah, but so link so you know check this out when you get a chance. This is at Google Books and they have lots of info worlds there online and it's 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 really great to look through these. And I think this was published weekly, so it was probably one of the first. I think weekly sort of news computer news magazines. Uh, So it says, not too long ago, I grieved to learn of the passing of ROM magazine. Hardly a year old, ROM gave up the ghost after only nine issues. Any specialized field of activity, whether commercial or recreational, tends to support a variety of specialty periodicals. IMJ is one of these in the microprocessor field. Okay, the first significant periodical was Byte, and it continues to be the leader in circulation and prestige. But again, this is from 1979. But as other magazines entered the field, it became clear that the emphasis of Byte is in the rigorous analysis of the... Issues relating to personal computing, computers. So, see, this article is kind of nice because it's talking about a lot of these magazines we've been covering. Kilobot magazine, on the other hand, tends to concentrate on practical issues, achievable projects within the grasp of most of the hobbyists. Dr. Dobbs' Journal of Computer Calisthenics and Orthodontia has taken up a stance of consumer advocacy and is often a source for full text program listings. Creative computing began with an express orientation towards the use of computers in education, and this continues to be its distinctive flavor. Okay. I'm going to jump ahead, but ROM magazine was different. It was the spirit and soul of personal computing. Other magazines published articles on how to build, but ROM ran a series chronically the experience of an absolute novice who built, who actually built a kit computer as a guide to other novices. I think the story was not very useful, <laughs> but to <laughs> us, the experienced practitioners in the field, the delightful series was both humorous and a critique of our failings and helping the beginners. So that's just a little part of this whole article here that mentions rom so worth taking a look at and right on the same link in there what's that
1: put the link in the show notes i'm sure people might want to yeah and
0: right there next to it on the same page is an advertisement for the fourth west coast computer fair all right may 11th 12th and 13th 1979 and uh the suite was a hundred
1: dollars back then
0: yeah can you imagine that single room 42 bucks or 37 holiday inn Anyway, so that's kind of neat how that worked out because it gave me an opportunity to talk about InfoWorld and give us a little more information about ROM, some of the other magazines. There's also going to be a link in the show show notes to Wikipedia about InfoWorld. And so I just wanted to mention, um, so it was an information technology – oh, InfoWorld is an information technology online media business operating under the umbrella of IDG Enterprise, a division of IDG – yeah, Let's that see.
1: publisher sounds familiar. It was, it was started
0: in 1978 as Intelligent Machines Journal by Jim Warren. Does that name sound familiar? Mm, no, I'm afraid it doesn't to me. He's the guy that founded the West Coast Computer Fair. How about that?
1: Oh, see, I've never been to the West Coast. And,
0: and he sold he sold the magazine to IDG in late 1979. And early next year, it was changed to Infoworld. And that's uh, just another thing to note is that most people might be more uh, familiar with the magazine for a certain personality that was created for it called Robert X. Cringely.
1: That name sounds familiar.
0: Yeah, and um, so Robert X. Cringely went on to uh, he wrote articles. He was kind of like a gossip reporter for the computer industry, and uh, he wanted to write a book. And I'm looking at my bookshelf because I'm going blank here, but um, but basically the uh, the Nerds that conquered the world or whatever that series is based on his book. The documentary from like the late '96 the or so. Yep. Trying for the Nerds. That's it. That's it. Yep. All right. That's a lot of information. So I'm looking I, at the active listings here, your from eBay the active listings. From the little teeny bit of information I could find, I actually sort of filled out the section on ROM pretty well. And I, so let's see. Lastly, and hold on. So I don't have a copy of ROM, though I have had in the past. You I, can for $90. Oh, yeah. That's right. We have to look at the eBay listings. I do have a copy of Creative Computing here. It's a November, December 1978 Christmas issue. And it's got... Uh, a nice drawing of Santa Claus on the cover, and then, and so in the upper corner it says now including ROM,
1: so All right, basically when so... it was
0: rolled in, and so when you get into that section you can order some of the back issues of ROM. Go ahead, send off that card. And then it has a, has an article called uh, a basic routine file index, you know program listing. So something they were known for program listings. It's got like a puzzle, a computer oriented crossword puzzle. And then be fun interesting. stuff back then. That might then. be interesting to scan in and publish, huh? Yeah, do
1: it. Uh, that was a fun thing back then, the program listings.
0: Yeah. Um, is this still part of ROM? See, this is kind of interesting. How do I tell when I'm still in the ROM section or out of the ROM section? Doesn't it looks like I'm still in the ROM or something? section. So there's robot color? programming, not as easy as it looks. <laughs> <laughs> still, that's still true to uh, these days. Hey, check it out. Here's an ad for the Computer Mart of New York. That's Dan Veet's store.
1: And mm-hmm. you you see that in, in what? In the sec- ROM section. Of Creative, Creative computing. computing.
0: Yeah. So, the Meet the Sorcerer Computer, special introductory price of $895. Which uh, issue is that? This is November, December 78. Okay.
1: November, December 78. I'm going to go to archive.org and look that
0: up. All right. What else we got here? Anything else worth missing? It looks like. Oh, here's an article by Lee Felzenstein. Mike macro your logistically, of course. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that
1: means. <laughs> November 78, Creative Computing Magazine. You found it online? Volume, volume 4, number 6, right?
0: Yeah. You what found page? it online? Yep. What page? Oh, cool. So put a listing show. Anyway, there you go. Check it out. It's kind of well, What neat. page
1: was the ROM thing on?
0: When- uh Oh, boy. 117 off the top of my okay. head. Check that out. 117. One- Go to 114 because that's got the first – where it shows the ad for getting back issues are wrong. I would say that's where it kind of really starts.
1: Okay. um, There and, it is. Back issues are wrong. Okay. It's a different number on the scrolling thing because they have like all those previous – Oh, yeah. And you already There's... looked
0: at the active listings on eBay. There aren't any right? right now. There is the first issue. Oh, okay. That's right. There's a yeah, and you know we it's it's hard sometimes to do these searches because you, you don't want to narrow it down too much where you ROM miss is stuff. So
1: generic, yeah.
0: So there's a bunch of stuff in here for like Blender CD-ROM magazine and launch. These are like these internet magazines from the '90s, which I thought was really interesting that those show up. Or anything with CD-ROM in the name. But you know those are going to be kind of collectible. Blender and uh, launch these like you know early internet '90s sort of magazines that came with CDs and multimedia and stuff. Oh, that's true.
1: I probably but, have a couple like that.
0: So, you know, if that's kind of. Oh, I see it. Yeah, $90. Buy it now. That's crazy. Oh, and the one with the motorcycle, too.
1: Yep, it's very first issue. Which yep. I guess that might not be a bad price, but it looks like the person's been waiting for
0: somebody to buy it for that price. Yeah, I bet you it's just the same person, right? Oh, it might be. The fact that they're both ten percent off for the same price, kind of. Yeah, it's got two days left. Uh, two days, fourteen hours. I don't know what it started at. So, of course, what we did here is we put in the show notes. We put, you know, uh, active and sold links, and under sold, I don't see anything that's sold.
1: Okay, so certainly not
0: this one. You can buy it for ninety
1: dollars, but then still pay three seventeen for shipping. Rip off! Oh, that's
0: being sold by Vintage Computer Museum. Oh yeah, boy, that, that guy must be living. Living ex- in large. <laughs> it must be. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it, he has cool stuff. Yeah. If you want um, it, if you really if want he, it, I mean, you know. If you can sell it for 90 more power to him. It's no different than it, you know. Some people might go, whoa, that's, you know, what a jerk. you trying to rip people off. But you know what? It's no more ripping anybody off than thinking, you know, this is a really interesting antique. And I think it's, you know, it's really worth this. And you put it in your store and you know, whatever. If, you, if it's valuable enough to you, you buy it. Yep valuable I've been, I've
1: been letting go a lot of my compute gazette magazines for about six bucks a piece i think it's a fair enough price
0: yeah that's a good pro- i you know
1: anyway so move on so what do you got i have the transactor oh from april 1978 to august 1989
0: now did that actually become a magazine was it really a magazine or so- sort of a newsletter at first right it was a newsletter. In fact, one copy I'm looking at right now, which is the online version,
1: is newsletter based. It looks like it was printed on
0: um, parchment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, parchment. Is
1: a scroll? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it looks like it was just printed using like a, uh, like a daisy wheel printer or something like that. It's letter quality, but it's laid out like a typewriter. Anyway, um, earlier Commodore PET computer owners had an exclusive newsletter at their disposal, at least at first, if they were on the mailing list of Commodore Canada. The transactor uh, started out as a bulletin for Commodore PET users. In its capacity, it provided useful details for hacking the PET computer. This is real hands-on stuff here. Uh, Giving readers a deep technical overview of the inner workings of the PET. And you know, Commodore was always like that. Now this is a different group, but Commodore stuff was always like that. you can always tear into a Commodore computer because there's plenty of information for it, even when it was brand new. Um, before long, the Transactor could easily be found in the U.S. too. Yeah, yes. Um, Commodore always had a history of open architecture, and in this magazine, uh, it helped you to exploit the special capabilities of the hardware. It was also used by Commodore as a venue for announcing bugs or other faults that were discovered in Commodore hardware. And readers of the Transactor were always the first to know. As technical as the magazine was, though, it didn't require the reader to have an aptitude for everything regarding computers. Hardware folks would uh, find articles that are of specific interest to them, while software developers were equally catered to. The stories were also capable of holding the interest of the common computer user, however that's defined. In September 1982, the transactor got a makeover and went from being a published bulletin to becoming a complete magazine with the glossy pages, pictures, and everything that you're used to. This is probably the time that it was more ser- taken more seriously by the average home computer user. After all, we all like our shiny stuff. One of the more famous regular contributors of the magazine was Jim Butterfield. Chances are anybody who used Commodore computers extensively had come across the name Jim Butterfield. He was a genius when it came to Commodore hardware and programming.
0: You know, we should also we should add a link. He was also in a television program. Sort of like the bits and bytes program I like so much.
1: Yeah, but we I... were talking about that before. Those little short uh, short um, computer yeah. shows that were out there in the 80s. I'll just search for it while you're talking. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'll continue. In January 1988, as the Amiga was making its stride into the world of computing, a spinoff magazine called Transactor for the Amiga. Um started to come out the last known issue of the original transactor is the august 1989 issue it then sort of disappeared from the market uh, and that's where the transactor for the amiga ran on a little bit Um, there are no indications in the last issue leading people to believe that it was the last one so you got your last issue of the original transactor and then you didn't get it the next month Hmm. or the next month after that so it just dropped And I'm looking at, which issue is this now? Transactor number three, uh, volume three, issue three. So volume three, that would have put it, uh, 1981, late 1981. And some of the articles in here, bits and pieces as as a a section, unit to unit copying, IEEE timeout defeat, Comol 80, which is a programming language, um, Pacific Coast Computer Fair. um, Huh, I haven't heard of that one before uh, that's on page four, uh, the CBM 8010 auto answerer. So there's some information about a modem. And let's see, Jim Butterfield on programming. There's one of his sections, screen editing. So you got a lot of software and hardware, uh, hacking stuff, just, just as I mentioned earlier. And if you really wanted to know your computer, this was the magazine for it. I know your Commodore computer, Commodore PET. And there's even some circuit diagrams in here, um, electronic schematics for, let's see, automatic answer for CBM 8010 modem. Okay, so this is a hardware project that you would build with parts from Radio Shack when you can get parts from Radio Shack, and you would interface it with your 8010 Commodore modem, and it becomes an auto-answering modem with this circuit. It gives you a bigger idea of you know what this magazine was like and what it catered to, and and they they go on to detail to explain how these circuits work, which is nice. So if
0: you had a passing interest in this stuff, you could learn a little something from it. And so basically, the magazine uh, evolved, except when the Amiga came in, it's it spun off.
1: Yes, it, it it the Transactor became more user friendly uh, as opposed to being engineer friendly. Yeah. So you still got more details about, uh, I'll pick a later transactor one. I was looking at, but that's of interesting earlier.
0: because, um, you know, down the road, whenever we do, when we do this again, with later computer magazines, you know, one of my all time favorites is a magazine that started off life is called info 64. So it started off with the Commodore 64 and the Vic 20 coverage. And then later on it just became info. Cause you had the Commodore 128, then the Amiga came out. And then of course, ultimately it became an Amiga magazine for the most part.
1: Yes, and then the original. Well, it it they it created a spinoff. Yeah, but I mean the info the,
0: one, they pretty much just evolved oh, okay, the same that magazine. One. So I know there were a lot of Commodore sixty four and one twenty eight fans that weren't you know irked by that. Probably,
1: <laughs> I had my Commodore Amiga in nineteen eighty eight, so I started getting Amiga World. Um, looking at issue nine here. Um, what year is this? Um, issue nine. Issue three is eighty one. Issue nine will be eighty seven. Eighty-seven, eighty-eight, depending on which volume number it is. Or no, volume then issue. That's how it goes. And here's um, pop ASCII for the C64, huh. the one megabyte C64. But then there's another article, ride your 4040 on the serial bus. And that is the old 4040 disk drive for the pet computer. And they tell you how you can plug it into your Commodore 64 and 128 directly just by going through the uh, serial connector on it. That's interesting. And there's Jim Butterfield writing another article, Color Coordination. Um, so this is, yeah, this is where it gave gave you something to do if you just wanted to play around with what it can do, but it still talked about some things that if you wanted to hack into the hardware. So it is a nice color um, version here. What issue is this? Uh, August, oh, 1989. Did they slow down or something like you that?
0: You know, just to look at Jim Butterfield, I think he kind of reminds me of uh, the guy, uh, was it Quint or whatever from Jaws?
1: Yes. The,
0: the, you know, I, the sea I, yeah. guy. I can see it now. The captain of his boat or whatever. He just seems to have these real uh, salty. I don't, I'd have to listen to him again in this show. I don't know if he talked that way, but. He's going to need a bigger expansion for us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, here is um, a whole bunch of assembly language that you can type in yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's kind of that fun. Have been...
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, just following the columns is fun on that stuff. Anyway, so you know, if you, if you really... didn't have
0: a drive, I mean, and then you got it done, and it, then you had something to do on it.
1: Yeah, exactly. You well know, you needed an assembler to make it work first. And, uh, unlike the Apple at the time, the Commodore at least the, i don't know if the pet did but the commodore 64 did not have a built-in you know assembler or machine language mode you uh-huh. you got it if you had like the fast load cartridge which pretty much everybody had just nobody knew how to get into the it, it wasn't a full editor assembler it, it didn't do a whole lot i mean it let you program an assembler but it really wasn't fully featured but uh if you want to relive or maybe understand more about the hardware from a user perspective. The Transactor magazine, there's a huge archive on the archive.org for uh-huh. these magazines. Read through them if you have an interest in it and you'll see what it was like to hack around with some of this hardware. You know, get some uh, if you have the time, some detailed insight into Commodore hardware.
0: Yeah, see there's not very much on eBay as far as buying the trying to buy the real ones. Or the yeah, and it's a good thing we have. Yeah, there it is. The trans- Amiga Transactor. Oh, wait, that's right. I was looking at the the sold ones.
1: There's two Amiga Transactor ones that came up. And that's only because it
0: said, um, did you mean transistor? <laughs> oh, no, I meant transactor. Oh, that's right. Those are the active ones. Yeah, someone got yes. a deal back in January for 13 issues of it for only three bucks. <laughs> really? Someone made out, yeah, on the sold ones. Oh, yeah. here's, okay.
1: Uh, and they and they may come and go. Wow, uh, that would have been nice to have. Oh well. It looks like they it may have been for some people a one-off purchase back when you can you know have a whole shelf of uh, computer magazines in the bookstore, mm-hmm. and they would buy it because you know the front cover looked cool or whatever. But then they read it and they said, "Well, this isn't really for me. I just want to play games," and and then that issue just kind of hung around maybe ended up in somebody's in a box, um, got passed around or probably a lot of them got thrown away.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of computer magazines got thrown away. I think a lot of magazines get thrown away or recycled.
1: It was probably intimidating to some degree. I mean, and that's understandable. Um, it it was a big, big era in 19 in in the early eighties and stuff that, uh, and well, the late 70s, early 80s, where it was sort of, you know, for people who – it was for the nerds, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it, it seems like it did grow for people who still wanted to get their hands dirty in the hardware, but it's not as popular as, as some of the other ones. And so while I segue towards yours
0: – Yeah, I think it was what... just – it was another stepping stone in – uh You know, sort of like cars where people had to, I don't know, (laughs) crank their cars. And then, you know, as starters, electric starters came common, that was just, was disappeared. Or you had to, you had to heat up the uh, radiator so the water would melt. Yeah, or something. Or the ice would melt. (laughs) So, right. So, moving into the next magazine, I think probably this next magazine sort of... uh, The all for one. Yes. Well, it's sort of, it, it moved, computer magazines moving into the next generation of of where computers were. So it was Compute Magazine. And it came around starting in the fall of 79. So, you know, almost into 1980. And it lasted sometime until 1994. So it was one of the first in the new generation of computer magazines published, especially for the consumer line of personal computers and had as its parent publication, the Pet Gazette in 1978. During its heyday in the 1980s, Compute covered all of the major personal computer platforms. It actually spun off into different editions with, I know, the Commodore version, I think, being its its most popular. And, and the the Gazette, the Compute Gazette, yes. And its its original goal was to also um, write about and publish programs for all the computers that use some version of the MOS Technology 6502 processor. Or I guess what I was saying is like typing in programs and such. So, most of them. They did have um, yeah. some TI-99 stuff, too. It started out with the Commodore PET then the Commodore VIC-20, the Atari 8-bit series, the Apple II Plus, and some 6502-based computer kits, such as the Rockwell AIM-65, the Kim-1 by MS Technology, and others from companies such as Ohio Scientific, which we've Sounds covered. Annoying. yes. Compute claimed in 1983 that it published more type-in programs quote, in each issue than any magazine in the industry, unquote. Most personal computers at the time came with some version of the basic program- programming language, so and machine code programs were also published, usually for some simple video games listed in uh, basic data statements as hexadecimal numbers that could be poked into the memory of a home computer by a stub loader at the beginning of the program. Also made so the graphics faster. Yeah, sort of like um, the Transactor. And another magazines at the time, it sort of started life. You know, a lot of people couldn't afford uh, disk drives back then, the late 70s. So people would type it all in. But by the May 1988 issue, slightly later on, the magazine was redesigned, and the type-in program listings were dropped, as it was, was support, a lot thinner too. As was support for the Atari 8-bit computers. In 1990, Compute was out of publication for several months when it was sold to General Media, which this is interesting. Publishers at the time of Omni and Penthouse magazines. <laughs> which yeah, and Omni of course was a really big. Um, it it was it was it wasn't science fiction at all, was it? Uh, it was just it, science. It, I think
1: it was science Uh, yeah. I have, I have a, a handful of Omni magazines. It was science that's... porn and also,
0: Penthouse. yeah, that was I'm kind kidding, of,
1: was. I guess you can call it that. You know, it, it's, it's like, <laughs> it's like cool stuff. It's, it's, it's futuristic, but yeah. it's also modern or what can be, or what, what can
0: we do now? And if we stuck with it, what we can do in the future. So in May, May of 1990 is when they bought them. Uh, and then they changed the name to all caps COMPUTE without the exclamation point. So the you don't cover, have to yell it anymore. And then the cover design was changed to resemble that of Omni Magazine. In 1994, the published ceased publication as Ziff Davis bought Compute's assets, including its subscriber list. So right. that was kind of a strange going away or what happened to it. I would have liked to find out more information about what caused its sort of downfall at the end. Because, you know, yeah. 1994, I, you know, um, the internet wasn't coming on that that strong just yet to put any magazines out of business. That's true. There were still some magazines out there. So uh, so a great big thank you to Wikipedia, link in the show notes, because actually most of that, that right there, I lifted out of Wikipedia because uh, it just seemed to be the best source yeah. <laughs> of this story versus trying to find, you know, we, we try to use different sources and, you know, describe it in our own words. But... Uh, I, This is mostly lifted from Wikipedia this time. Um, I just want to mention that uh, historically brewed my zine, I copied somewhat of the format of Omni magazine when I redesigned it. I think it was issue five or so, but I really liked the clean look of uh, the way articles started and the, the layout of the columns and stuff. And I actually copied Omni magazine. White text on black background. Yeah, no, (laughs) no, no black text on white background, just the way it was laid out though. Somewhat. So I have a few links that'll be in the show notes. One is to AtariMagazines.com, which uh, has, and here they're they're not scanned in pictures, but they're the scanned in text. So you can view a, a single issue's table of contents. You can you can val- uh, browse different covers, and you can also browse by authors or by articles. Really nice collection here. Yes, um, at that website by Kevin Savitz. And then there's also really, uh huh. He does that website. Then also archive.org. Okay. Of course, uh, the Internet Archive has some issues archived there that you can look at. And it also quotes the Wikipedia articles. that good. Yes.
1: <laughs> my, and, my college professor will give you an F for uh, citing Wikipedia, <laughs> but it's still good yeah. information.
0: And then lastly, I'm linking to an article from 2012 from Ars Technica. It's called First Encounter, Compute Magazine, and it's glorious, tedious type in code. <laughs> oh, but that was the fun stuff. Hey, I know. Uh, I thought that was I want, funny, though.
1: I wanted I want to mention something about that. You, you had mentioned something about 1983, um, how comp- Compute claimed it had published more type-in programs. Well, that is the sound of three 1983 issues of Compute. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, the September 1983, uh, which has the game K's of Ice, an excellent 3D graphics game for Vic, 64, Pet, Atari, and Apple. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. And there's a Sprite editor for the TI-99. Um, educational programs for the Timex Sinclair. Uh, this first, this issue here. Oh, look. There's a the Reader Service card. Um, it. Some ads in the back. 308 pages. Not bad, but that's actually kind of small. October 1983. Oh, these are complete. They still have all the inserts on them. Um, 344 pages. And last but not least, December 1983, it has 392 pages. Wow. Of anything that... I never knew they got quite that big. It also had... I did... This issue I actually acquired... Uh, A few years back, but I had this originally when I had my Commodore 64 and 128 and when I sold everything, I sold all my magazines with it, too. Yeah. Um, But I had this one. It had Super Basic 64. It was a type-in program that gives you 35 graphics commands for the Commodore 64. (laughs) Um, And it also had TI word processing system. I don't know if that was a type-in or what. I'm going to go through this real quick. There's some cool ads for, like, hardware uh, an Atari Reina Systems 1000 Atari floppy drive. Um, TI word processor. What page is that? 314. Yeah, way back in the back of the book. Um, three. Let's see. Cosmic Computers ad. Double page spread here. 312. TI word processor. It is a type in program. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Of course. It was expensive to buy TI hardware back then, so um, it looks like it only covers, let's see, one, two, three, four full pages of the magazine of type-in program. That that gives you a TI word processor. Now, I believe a lot of these type-in programs are available as downloads because somebody took the time to type them in and then archive them and send them up on archive sites of some sort, and you could probably find the actual program in these magazines somewhere to use in your emulator or transfer to a disk to use on a real machine. Yeah. And if not, well, you can
0: always type it in yourself. Well, probably a lot of people typed them in and saved it. Uh, Hopefully that'll end up somewhere one day. And and back then, this near 400 pages,
1: it's it's probably thicker than a Byte magazine, Um, $2.50, which really wasn't all
0: that bad back then. So if you go, so just to mention too, if you go to this Ars Technica article, it's, it's good to read. It's got two different, it's got a couple of covers on here and some pictures from inside with some of the listings and some ads. Uh, it's got a lot, it's an interesting article. It's got a, some neat stuff to check out too. Yeah,
1: I like it. It shows you how the type in programs work. And the neat thing is that the type in programs were in a font very similar to what you would see with that particular computer. Yeah. So you get the look and feel of it. Yeah, this is a really nice article here. It does, it does break down the magazine,
0: uh, the magazine style pretty well. It's kind of interesting that, I guess, you would think that, like, if you look at the... Are you looking at that one article? If you look at the one page that's the machine code stuff. Yes. You think they could at least done the, uh, like, every other line be shaded? Or, you know what I mean? Like a bar... Um, you know, when I did these... The computer uh, paper look, you know, where, so you can sort of yeah. distinguish the lines better? Well, they they had some kind of a machine
1: code entry program, and you would just sit there and type in the letters, letters and number combinations. I used to use a roller. Yeah, I would just just go line by line, but we didn't have keypads on the Commodore 64. It's crazy. Uh, I know. So it made it a little difficult. Well, then again, when you have hex numbers, um, you would have probably need to have a hex keypad to make it easy. But yeah, it's it it's tedious. But half the fun is seeing what it is when you finally get it done. The other half the fun is it actually working when you get it done. You don't have a bug. Yeah, exactly. the way this one's laid out, it looks like it's just laid out address level, like the starting address, the letters, mm-hmm. you, numbers you type. And if there is a problem, you're going to have to find the mistake somehow. But later on, they came out with programs like MLX. They, they actually produced their own uh, entry method and they use special codes or even typing in the basic programs. It would have a checksum. And when you had this program running in the there's a special program running in the background. Every time you typed in a line, it gave you a two-digit two-digit number. And if that didn't match what was on the line printed in the magazine, then you can retype the line and you see where your mistake was. So you wouldn't type in a whole program as you did earlier. And then if one number was off, it's up to you to try to troubleshoot it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that would be fun. All right, so... I guess we'll move along. So, if uh, as far as the active listings, uh, should be plenty. Yeah, there's quite a bit. It's also pulling up other stuff. that you anything that uses the word magazine and compute, I wonder if I should change this. Uh, this bring up a lot of stuff. Well, go to this, the left ca- left side category under under vintage computing. Yeah, it still only breaks it down. Let me see if I try it in um, quotes here. So. Compute magazine in quotes. Oh, it still brings up the Computer Asia magazine. Oh, there you go. That's better. I should have did that originally. So, so just add Compute magazine in quotes, and then now it gives you more of the magazine. I'll change the link in the show notes here. Ah, uh, there we, are. there we are. Okay. So currently, there's about forty-one listings. Uh, you know, six dollars a piece. Uh, Fifteen for three. So you can pick these up pretty cheap, in other yes. words. And these are the really 80s, nice. mostly, late 80s, it looks like. They're
1: just really nice to work with. I mean, just reading them. Yeah, you can read them online, but still, something about holding the magazine. Yeah. And then there's the ones that have the, the mailing labels on them. You find out who used to own it,
0: who who the original owner was. And then far as what's sold or whatever, so if, if I... Add the brackets there it's only showing nine that were sold yeah but i think it's probably right because it's bringing up a lot of stuff so try it now see if you so yeah so six dollars six dollars these are 86 issues six dollars 25 dollars for an 83 issue uh three dollars six dollars five dollars yep that's about right plus shipping but you know if you wanted to, if you're really looking for a compute magazine you could you know, just do a wide search and and maybe you can stumble on other other issues somewhere else too like anything yeah, you're gonna you're gonna find uh, like I'm doing this we're doing the search for compute without the exclamation and it's of course finding it with the exclamation oh there
1: the the compute magazine with Apple Speed calc huh so if you need a you need to type in spreadsheet for your Apple II, plus, 2 plus E or 2c there you go. Yeah, they always, it seemed like every every issue they would put in a game or two, at least one uh, productivity program, and a couple articles on some how to's and tricks and tips. So they were re- well rounded in their subject matter.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it just made me think about, um, you know, later on, I guess it was definitely into the 80s. Well, yeah, because they were disc based. Remember, you had magazines that were, you had computer, I guess you could call them magazines, but they were disc magazines
1: yes run had some of those
0: magazines so we're going to need to cover and,
1: those and compute
0: there's some pc that, ones too and i actually have some
1: there's some that were dedicated disc only and then there's others that had a disc supplement you can either pay more for it uh, at the bookstore or you can pay more for a subscription they'll send the disc to you in the plastic sleeve with the magazine
0: and then once we get into much later on like uh my all-time favorite mac magazine Mac addict, you know it always came with a CD in the early days. Well, well into its later days too. Yeah, I have a bunch of the Run discs
1: and the the this... micro compendium of the Run magazine that went in these little book, little magazine holders. And finally, our last magazine is Doctor Dobbs Journal.
0: Yeah, another was... early and very long lived, the most long lived one, I think. And it had
1: kind of a a, a tight focus, but we'll, we'll get into that, uh, from January 1976 to February of 2009, and actually it extended uh, past that. But anyway, Dr. Dobbs Journal was intended to promote computer software and programming. That's its focus for, for programmers. Uh, before it was called Dr. Dobbs Journal, it was the brainchild of Bob, Bob Albrecht, hope I pronounced that right, and technical support by Dennis Allison, and documenting a project called Tiny Basic. So this started from a project uh, called Tiny Basic, which was distributed for the cost of a postage stamp to anyone who wanted to work with it. This shortly became a collaborative effort by readers to share their modifications of Tiny Basic through the journal. Those same people rallied for an ongoing publication, and Dr. Dobbs' journal was born.
0: And I, I guess, Jeff, at some point, we have to maybe we have to talk about programming languages and stuff because, of course, we haven't really talked about it too much. But I know Tiny Basic, it was a necessity for people because a lot of people, maybe in their mid 70s, there they only had 4K of RAM.
1: Or they were yelled at by some open letter to uh, the <laughs> public about copying Microsoft yeah. Basic. <laughs> hey, right. I, w- I wouldn't doubt that was part of it. Mm-hmm, okay. Right. If nobody wants to give us their Basic, we're going to create one to give away. Yeah. Um, the name Dobbs was a loose concatenation of Dennis and Bob. Um, In its early years, content was provided by enthusiasts and volunteers. Among those volunteers were well-known computing pioneers Steve Wozniak, Jeff Raskin, and Gary Kildall. How about that? Some big names in their uh, early days. Um, For over two decades, Dr. Dobbs was the go-to publication for both hobbyists and professionals alike. The journal content rarely contained articles solely on computing hardware since its primary focus was on software and programming. As time went on, the journal matured, for the lack of a better word. Um, fewer hobbyist-oriented articles made their way into the pages, and more professional programmer-oriented articles took over. It became a magazine for professionals, kind of like that, um, what was it that InfoWorld you were talking about? Not InfoWorld, um, Info Journal. You were talking about that a little earlier in the show. Yeah, InfoWorld. InfoWorld. Yeah, it became more of a professional magazine, mm-hmm. an office magazine, or an IT department magazine. In 2009, the standalone printed version of Dr. Dobbs' journal ended and was subsequently merged as a section in the Information Week magazine, another one of those professional journals, or professional magazines. By 2011, Dr. Dobbs' journal became a subscription-only PDF magazine. That's awesome. And then by the end of to- 2014, not long ago, all Dr. Dobbs' journal activity had ceased. However, the website still remains as an archive of content including downloadable issues all the way back to 1988.
0: Yeah, because I didn't realize it was that long ago because um, I don't go to the bookstore that much anymore or look in the computer magazine section, but I still do, you know, at least every yep. couple of months or whatever. And I can st- kind of thought I had just seen it not too long ago, but I guess it was a few years ago. You
1: know, I had trouble finding the downloadable issues. Um, so don't take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> Because I was trying to look for an online copy, and I, most of the ones I could find that were in digital form were back to 1988. And they may have archived the articles, but not the magazine, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Not like a readable magazine, but, you know, the actual articles uh, are probably archived. Uh, an odd thing about this magazine is I am a computer programmer by trade, but I never really read this magazine. I probably could have taken leaps and bounds in my career had, had I done so.
0: But did it, would it have necessarily uh, covered the type of programming you're, you're doing or you were doing?
1: Uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, I go to, was it Dr. Dobbs? Is it Dr. Dobbs.com? Well, whatever it is, we, we're definitely going to have it in uh, the show notes. Dr. Dr. Dobbs.com. There it is. Yes, it would have covered uh, .NET stuff. Probably Visual Basic and... and Visual Basic .NET, C , plus plus .NET, C Sharp .NET, web development, and then they've been doing cloud and mobile computing.
0: And what kind of programming do you do, Jeff?
1: Mostly Visual Basic .NET um, web applications. For for
0: what purpose? For what kind of what What's the?
1: Just disseminating uh, databases of information. Just okay. A way to make uh allow people to look at data a certain way. Like internal at the company you work at? Yeah.
0: Yep. Okay. I took basic programming one course and I took Fortran one semester and COBOL one semester in the late eighties. <laughs> <laughs> COBOL. <laughs> yeah. I was officially a, a systems analyst major in nineteen eighty six. Okay. Yeah. And my that's, my
1: official title is programmer analyst. So some people would argue because I do visual basic mostly
0: that I'm not a real programmer, but Hey, okay. <laughs> yeah. What, um, so that's kind of interesting because I've certainly heard of visual basic. So what is the state of visual basics this day? Would you say th- these days, would you say it's sort of, is it, is it going out or is it, is it sort of outdated you know, now or it,
1: it, well with the. Net architecture, everything compiles to pseudocode Kind of like what? Um, oh, what else did that? I forget what other language does that. But it, it's it's basically a choice. Uh, I can program in C sharp. Um, it's all what they call managed code. Huh. Uh, there's you're you're writing. It's like writing for um, um, the iOS that the 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 iPhone and Apple these days, and writing for Android. You're writing to. An environment right right and everything compiles to work with that API what's well, you know, all object-oriented right would that be accurate? it is yes okay. so Visual Basic is just the syntax you, you type in things differently than you would with C sharp but you can do the same thing or pretty much the same thing between the two and they'll compile to very similar code that runs on the same dotnet platform which dotnet needs to be installed on the Windows machine in order for this stuff to run and and that's already there so that's what the state of it is now. They've enhanced the syntax, they've made things easier to perform. Uh, of course, there's no line numbers like in the eight-bit basic days. It's uh, being object-oriented. It can be extremely complex or extremely simple, and it's really up to the programmer to make it that way. Hmm. They just enhanced the tools and, you know, made complex concepts easier to do with just fewer commands. So you don't have to keep typing your own functions and stuff to do things.
0: Hey, well, let me ask you a question and see what, see what you we won't spend too much time on this. Cause it's not directly related to our show, but it's kind of fun on the air live, if you will. But, um, so let, let's see what you, you, you think of this. So at the company I work at and, um, I'm, I'm an IT support, so I have nothing to do whatsoever with programming or the product or anything, but our primary product is a, a, a a, a internet security, network security uh, device, and I know that it's all programmed, or they program this code and this, the the uh, software all in Java.
1: Okay. And That's... my
0: and my my takeaway is that that they know that sometime real soon they need to like rewrite it all not in Java. So Java... I guess.
1: Java is another another language that is that Uh, kind of like everybody sees it
0: is going to go away sometime in the near future or something. It
1: it depends on what Oracle does with it. Oracle owns Java now, right? Yeah, you're right. If they want to be nasty about it, you know, they could really make it a bad day for everything and anything that uses Java, including writing for the Android platform Mm -hmm. that uses Java. Java is is kind of like the .NET architecture in a way. Uh, You write in a structured syntax and it compiles to a pseudocode which gets executed against the library okay or the the api so
0: you install the java runtime all this stuff runs. yeah right and it kind of and so again i'm not a programmer it kind of compiles it on in real time or whatever javascript runs in real time java may run in real time or or maybe translates it is a better yeah that's kind of what it, it I, ideally, and other
1: people may argue with me on this, um, and that's fine. Uh, there's some things. I can always learn new things. Um, you sort of compile it, or it gets compiled on the fly, <laughs> and that's what that pseudocode is. Yeah. It's like an intermediate. It's, uh, it's almost like machine language, but not machine language. It's, it's not the stuff you're going to see directly, uh, but the, the Java language gives you a human-readable form of uh, programming that then compiles to something that can run faster on on, against the api against the environment very interesting yeah it's not it's not just having a basic interpreter in rom in 8k and everything you type gets pumped immediately through the the rom routines how how they did it with the 8-bit days all right so back to the show but what you were saying, real quick, and I'll open it here. Um, <laughs> yeah, they might want to get away from Java because security issues. Yeah, um, and they're more? obviously running against microprocessors. Ideally, they would write using the microprocessor's native assembly code. I think they're going to, but I I don't I don't fully know. But it can be a headache. <laughs> it can really be a headache. Uh, but hey, it's one of those things. If you know
0: it, you know it. And so I think you were saying. Weren't you saying before the show that you couldn't find any online archives of Doctor Dobbs? Uh, yeah, maybe I just needed some coffee. Uh, did you find some? Oh, I did. I didn't look. I was just looking at the the active eBay stuff, but no, I didn't. I didn't look for for one scanned in. Yeah, it's, uh, I tried looking. I found
1: the front cover on that. Was it Vintage Dash Computer? Uh-huh. thing they had some uh, a nice front cover of one but i think all the articles have been archived on the dr dobbs website oh and right other than that of course i know that you'll be able to say well i want to know what was on uh you know the 1993 december issue or whatever and and expect
0: to go to it right away but the articles probably there but i know looking at ebay you can uh, looks like you can pick up some some early issues pretty cheap so both october so it would be nice to know which, if there was a a, a
1: listing of which um, issues had what articles, that would make it nice to find specific issues and have them on hand. I guess, I'm looking at some of these here. Well, there are some of the earlier ones when it was called Dr. Dobbs' Journal of Computer Calisthenics and Orthodontia. Yeah. It's made a name. But then here's some from 2006, 2001 that... It's kind of what it was most of the time. Like, here's uh, here's one that was all about algorithms. Yep. And why isn't the Zoom feature on eBay
0: working for me right here? Software tools.
1: Yes. Okay, inside the Java data structures library, predicting communications bottleneck, JPEG 2000 coding. Right. Um, using Windows NT embedded 4.0. And, yeah, that, that's the kind of stuff you dealt with. But I'm, I'm thinking Dr. Dobbs probably had more practical explanations of this technology as opposed to your glossed over uh, IT magazines like Information Week or something that would give you more of a, a manager's point of view as opposed to a programmer's, like IT
0: manager's point of view as opposed to an IT programmer's point of view. Yeah, looking at some of the ones that sold recently, there's, there's a lot more of... Looks like someone sold a bunch of different ones from the mid two thousands, Doctor Dobbs Journal, and these look familiar. These look like a lot of what I'd seen at bookstores, you know, obviously more recently a decade ago, but they're all selling for like a dollar forty eight, dollar <laughs> forty eight, all yeah. of a dollar forty eight apiece. And, and and I've actually
1: rarely been exposed to these magazines too, even in other IT departments. Ruby um, on Rails, Java successor. <laughs> yeah ruby on rails is actually I, I i heard of it and it's a programming language i like to try to dabble in yeah um but it it does have it's actually good for something i don't know what that something is nor do i have an immediate need for that something i i i could look it up and say oh yeah that's right that's what that was good about but i it's one of those things that i've heard of it it might be a fun thing to to, to try and, and see that's what's happening with a lot of Stuff You get all these different programming languages out there and you have Python, you have of course Java, You have some specific ones like Ruby on Rails. It's more of a, it's more of a platform over an environment that's attached to an API. It's, it's like it's abstracting more and more of the core functionality, you know, focusing on
0: a better part of something else. I guess processors and infrastructure has gotten so fast that you can sort of do that more. Yes, oh, even, the on, downside.
1: even on embedded electronics, I do Arduino stuff. You know, that's, that's a different language. It has a structure similar to Java, but it compiles to native, um, it, it actually compiles to P code, the pseudocode, that runs on the interpreter in the microprocessor. Right. Hm. Yeah, it's not the fun 8-bit days where <laughs> 10 go to, 10 print hello, go to 10. <laughs> kind of miss those days. So, what,
0: did you looked at the sold ones, right? I only yeah, the- I was just looking. Yeah, a lot of them were like those mid two thousands. Apparently, they're from the UK. They're selling for equivalent a dollar forty eight. Okay, okay. I see the italics number. That's
1: yeah. There's one whole whole Doctor Dobbs journal. For and one thing Doctor
0: Dobbs did some of the early issues is they put them together in like a an annual volume. And I used to have a couple of those, which I'm pretty certain I don't anymore. Oh,
1: here is the January 2006 issue that says the return of Tiny TinyBasic. <laughs> <Or, or> TinyBasic.net. <laughs> PHP and pre-processed web pages. Yeah, that's what programming's turned into. It's a, a certain style of syntax. You can choose more than one programming language to do the same job, uh, any environment, uh, it's however...
0: Well it sounds like programming is uh I guess the sort of the dream of object oriented programming, which was in the nineteen seventies, right, was sort of another thing like Xerox Park was going after and then, you know, I think of Steve Jobs at next, you know, they're the big thing they were trying to push forward was object oriented programming. I guess that's yes. all that's all normal and standard stuff now.
1: It is, and it's grown wild. Uh, sometimes it's a ball of confusion. Because I can go for, like I I'm trying to learn how to program on uh, you know, Android devices. And I can understand programming concepts, but between what I work with and what I like to do these days, it's, there's a, there's a paradigm change and I have to learn the, the, the way the new structure is. And once I learn how the new structure works, how the objects work and how they interact with each other, then I can look at the syntax and language and say, oh, okay, this is what I got to type to make it do that. But and it might be me getting older too. It's tough to make that jump when you're used to one type for so long, and go to the next one, because it's like learning a new language. It's like me trying to learn Japanese. I, I could probably figure it out. I think you and can make it, it work. I, I, yeah, if I if I put my mind to it and really work on it, I can get it done. And then I know two languages.
0: I want you to teach me programming in Japanese.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yeah can we get a kanji <laughs>
1: keyboard yeah that would be interesting well hey get one of the earlier v- Commodore VIC-20s that was uh they they had the in Japan so. yeah they were released in Japan first anyway we better wrap it up yeah we better we're we're running up some time here so I think we're both okay. suddenly tired I know I am no, I I, I don't want to, I don't want to bore our listeners, but you know this is this is different than what we normally do. So yeah, we're you know talking back and forth like this, just uh, chewing rag chewing. That's not bad, but yeah, we do need to close this because people who are listening to us either are ready to go to bed, have gotten to work already, or it's lunchtime. So in closing, even though none of these magazines are being published anymore, the good news is that you can still read most of the back issues. Uh, less so in this episode than the last episode. We'll provide links in the show notes to online archive of as many of these magazines we can find in electronic formats. So our next show is two weeks from now, and it will be released on Friday, March 27th. Our website is historyofpersonalcomputing.com. Plus follow us on both Twitter and Facebook. Send feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com because we'd really love to hear from you. And please tell us, or tell somebody about us. Write a review on iTunes, or spread the word with Facebook, Google+, or Twitter, or Tumblr, or Pinterest. Uh, perhaps you're in a specialty discussion group. Tell them if you if you play video games online, multiplayer games. Tell them over your your team TeamSpeak. You know, let them know about us. And until then, take it away, David.
0: Yes, we want to say one last thing. So uh, until then, live long and prosper in our hearts, Leonard Nimoy. You know, Leonard Nimoy passed away on uh, February 22nd, and uh, he was 83 years old. And the reason I bring this up is because um, it just seems like Star Trek has always played a very important role in, uh, you know, nerds and geeks' lives. But it always seems to have... as 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 having had this connection with personal computing and even Absolutely. just computing in general. And and
1: you saw a lot of that in social media after he died. It just really exploded. Yeah. Um, the, some people you probably, probably some people in your own timeline you didn't think would really care much had possibly said something nice or reminisced a little bit about Leonard Nimoy and, and, and the characters he played. And you
0: know, Well, I'll, I think, you know... I, I would make the argument that you could you could look at any of the episodes of you know the the original series during its normal run and uh, you know that's that's 50 years ago, so but you could look at pretty much any one of these episodes and you could sort of your takeaway would be that one day in the future computers will become such that you know you can just talk to them and interact with them almost like a person and get answers
1: and they'll have glowing buttons. <laughs>
0: But then, of course, the show is also about action and adventure and science, and, and yet it still had that human. Universal piece, yeah. Well, on the human side of, of human interaction and people interaction and stuff, you know, and personality and all that stuff. And I just, you know, I think that's the future. Hopefully, that's that's the goal of computing, right? Is where you can just sort of, computer, what is this? Yeah. You know, and you as an Android user, unfortunately, I don't think uh, Siri's quite there yet but like i don't do use your android device a lot in in that mode where you talk to it and ask questions
1: yep it's not as it it doesn't come up with uh as catchy responses on everything like the apple site or like siri does but it works it'll
0: give me answers but um you know there seems like there's always been so just to close this out like there's always been a star trek connection with computing from the earliest days of uh I'm going to go with many computers where people started writing Star Trek games, text games, um, and then, of course, into the, the earliest personal computer days. And my very first interaction with the computer, and I, I talk about this in my story, which is you can read it on my site. It's in my book. But it talks about in 1975, I was in the fifth grade. I went to the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, Florida, my class. And we all sat down in this computing uh, lab and in front of what looked like giant typewriters, <laughs> but these were the terminals, you know, no screens. And then they all boom came to life and juices, 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 typing stuff out. <laughs> and it was amazing, you know? But we all played Star Trek on the computers. That was my first interaction with the computer. I was playing Star Trek. And then by nineteen seventy five, at ten years old, I was very much a Star Trek fan. And you know, as if you're a Star Trek fan, you know that Star Trek did, you know, reasonably well during prime time, but after three seasons it was cancelled. And then it wasn't until syndication of the 70s that it really started. And after we also went to the moon in 69, it started sort of becoming, you know, bubbling up from the surface or whatever. It's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's all. I just thought we should we should mention Leonard Nimoy and the effect of Star Trek. And it's really interesting. His very last tweet was sent just, uh, I want to say, it was just like a few days before he died. But here's his last tweet. A life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved, except in memory. L-L-A-P, which means Uh live long and prosper. Yep. So true. So, live long and prosper, Jeff. Live long and prosper, David.